So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests involved in writing and publishing. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like my face mysteriously appearing slowly but surely on the back of their necks. And if you're not one already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. As someone who has just about dipped his toes into the world of independent publishing by putting out New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine, I am increasingly curious to learn more about independent publishing. And I have heard very lovely things about Queen of Swords Press from all kinds of people I trust, including some past guests of the show. So I thought it might be interesting to learn more about both them and being an independent press in general by having award-winning author and editor Catherine Lindoff, the Queen of Queen of Swords, on the show. By the by, Queen of Swords is an independent small press based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and specializes in swashbuckling tales of daring do, bold new adventures in time and space, mysterious stories of the occult and arcane, and fantastical tales of people and lands far and near. Now to hear a little bit more than what you can just get by reading off the website by talking with Catherine. Here we are with Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Hi there. How are you? Doing well on a sleepy Sunday in Toronto. I hope you're doing okay down in, uh, I want to say, Minnesota? Uh, yeah, I'm in Minneapolis. So. Oh, Minneapolis, sorry. American cities and names. I mean, who can keep track of them? It's not like uh, we see you in our TV and film every day of our lives in Canada. <laughs> 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 or I should prepare for an interview. Who knows? Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> why don't we start in the shallow end and work our way deeper? Queen of Swords is a genre publisher, and you must love what you publish to put in the great deal of time and effort required to run an indie press. So, you know, uh, just part of getting to know you here, wouldn't you mind sharing with us, where did your love of genre writing begin, and what were some key texts for you while growing up? Oh, let's see. So I started out actually with historical fiction. So I read a lot of historical fiction, um, you know, as a preteen, as a teenager, um, Sir Walter Scott, Anthony Hope, Alexander Dumas, all that fun stuff, um, all of which are a lot of fun. And, you know, I kind of wanted to see more women. I wanted to see more women doing things. Um, and they're not particularly great books for active women's roles, except, you know, Milady running around killing people and so forth. <laughs> but, but apart <laughs> from that, um, so I wanted to to see more of that. And as I got a little older, I wandered into the science fiction and fantasy section of the library and started exploring. And so I think probably I can remember discovering Ursula Le Guin, and that would have been in probably the mid-70s. Um, so it would have been right around the time that the first Earthsea books were coming out and they were still marketing it as kids literature because, yeah. you know, by a woman, <laughs> it's fantasy, must be kids literature. Um, so I think a lot of it kind of went, you know, over the head. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I've, reread some, I've reread them since, but I think I'd have to really do a deep dive because I think there's a lot of stuff that just kind of well, zipped the third, on. The third one I always think of is like, this was marketed for kids, huh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like the, <laughs> just grapples with deep issues of mortality. I mean, I think, you know, kids are smarter than we give them credit for. I should totally be allowed to read that stuff. But just I could see, yeah, that'd be a, yeah. Uh, some of that going over the head of like a seven, 10 year old, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's stuff that, you know, it's, it's not that it isn't good. It's just that there's some things, there's some nuances. There's a lot of stuff that just kind of, you know, gallops past you because you don't have the same kind of attention to detail, life experience, all of that stuff that makes it really come to life. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so I started with Le Guin and then kind of went on from there and read, you know, all the, all the classic stuff at the time. Uh, my mother was very into Conan, so I got to read a lot of Robert Howard <laughs> and Michael Moorcock for some reason. I don't know why the two, but for some reason, those were two that she really enjoyed. Nice. So we had a lot of those laying around, those books laying around the house. So I read a lot of that. So yeah, just kind of kind of went from there. Okay. And what would be the origin story for Queen of Swords Press? How did it come about? Well, 
I have a background as a, um, a bookseller. So I was actually a bookseller before I was a writer. And I got into, I started writing fiction around the point that I closed up my bookstore because it was the 90s and I ran out of money as with many people who started bookstores back then, wildly underfinanced. And, you know, the market for a queer friendly feminist book, you know, little tiny bookstore is not great. So I started, um, I did what one does and I, I got into law school and I, during the course of a, a concentrated semester where they packed in into a much shorter time frame, the stuff that would have normally been spread out over a semester, I discovered that misery made me telekinetic. <laughs> and I, I'd like walk into the kitchen and dishes would slide off the countertop and stuff. So um, in the course of this, you know, my partner, then wife, uh, now wife said to me, hey, why don't you try writing a book? And she said it was like watching all the he the, the lights go on on a runway. Uh -huh. So I started writing and I was, I wrote a lot of short fiction. Uh, I was traditionally published by another small press for a number of years. We came to a parting of the ways after about five books and five years. And I was casting about for things to do. And I got offered a three book deal by a, what was at that point, a larger romance publisher. And the contract looked kind of hinky, so I had a local attorney take a look at it. And I did not know this woman. This was just somebody I got off a list. I paid a fee to. Right. And she called me up at work and left a message on my, my work voicemail that said, No, honey, no, don't sign this. <laughs> <laughs> which turned out to be prophetic uh, among other things that the contract had clauses that were so restrictive. Um, the level of NDA in them was such that you couldn't say anything good about working with them either. It wasn't just, you couldn't say anything bad. You couldn't say anything <laughs> at all. Going uh, after so, for that. It was a great experience. Get her. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, went back, tried to negotiate, got shot down and said, you know, walked away from it. You know, and at the time that was, that was, that was, you know, that was that was difficult. <laughs> hmm. Subsequently, about eight months later, they blew up really spectacularly, went bankrupt. There were lawsuits. There were all kinds of things going on. So, so I really I felt like the two hundred dollars or whatever I paid that attorney was totally worth it. So, this was the opportunity to do a bit of soul searching, figure out where my career was going at that point. And I thought, you know, I haven't done publishing yet. I've done writing. I've done editing. I've done book selling, but I haven't done publishing. And as I said to friends of mine at the time, and I, I, I cannot possibly be more dysfunctional than some of the people I've been working with. So with that key piece of information and a goal, I started doing, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, I started thinking about names. I took classes from the Small Business Administration. Mm -hmm. I took classes on writing ad copy, evaluating cover art all of that kind of good stuff, started the ball rolling on things, looking at names. And the Queen of Swords is a, is a tarot card and it's my tarot card. It's the tarot card I look at and go, that's my signifier. That's who I am. Oh, okay. <laughs> the best interpretation of the Queen of Swords card that I have seen, or the, the one that spoke loudest to me was a woman who is not to be trifled with. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's got those swords. <laughs> yeah. So I spent a couple of years prepping for it. Uh, launched in 2017. Uh, started with my backlist because I didn't want to practice on other people. That seemed unfair. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. So the first four books are my backlist, and then by the by 2018, I had started publishing other authors, and we went from there. Would you mind expanding on what those two years of prep were? Because I think a lot of people probably just go, "I'm going to do it," and yeah. they like get a web domain, and you know, within three or four weeks, uh, something's happening. But did those two years entail stuff like the classes you were mentioning, like the business small business stuff, or? I spent two years. I mean, it was basically I, I. So I'd already had the bookstore. I had already experienced the "Hey kids, Grandpa's got a barn. Let's just put on a show" style of starting a business. <laughs> it lasted about two years. By the time it ended, I had walking pneumonia. I uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, I just pulled a face. Anyway, yeah. go on. <laughs> yeah. um, I was able to scrape together the cash to pay back the people who loaned me money to start it. This was pre-crowdfunding. Crowdfunding was not so much a thing back then, but it was a lot. It was that was that was pretty painful. So when I looked at starting the press, I wanted to give it a better chance of success. So we have here in the Twin Cities an arm of the Small Business Administration, which is a federal program. The local subset of it is a, a nonprofit called Women Venture that does trainings with women 
you know, just to want to start small businesses. So I did some trainings with them, you know, and it was stuff like how to write a business plan, how to set up a basic budget, you know, things to know before you get started. So I went through, I, you know, hired an attorney to set up an LLC. I got a website set up. I bought domains. I did some research on getting a logo done. I hired an artist to do the logo. So it was a lot of that kind of stuff. And then the local literary center at the time was doing a lot of classes and things like how to write ad copy and how to look at cover art and evaluate what looks good on the book. So I did a lot of that kind of stuff. And then I was, you know, I was also networking around trying to figure out cover artists whose work I liked. And that was basically what a lot of what happened prior to launching the press. And then probably that whole first year was figuring out platforms and pricing and outreach and all of that stuff. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Yeah. I was going to ask you later about like what uh, formal and informal education most helped out with this. And I, I feel like we, you know, we're here now, so let's cover that. <laughs> Cheers. Okay. So if someone, you know, if someone's just browsing like indie pubs in general and they see yours, you know, what would you say sets Queen of Swords Press apart from the crowd? I think we do really interesting books that aren't necessarily getting published elsewhere. So I think we, you know, we, we do focus on um, LGBTQ protagonists. All of our books have at least one. So that's one aspect of it. I have fairly eclectic reading tastes and I'm the one who does most of our sales. So as a result, we're kind of, we do, we do a little bit of everything. And I think that that'll continue to be the case going forward. I like things that are mostly fun. You know, so we've got things like Alex Axe's steampunk stories, which are just, you know, rollicking, wild adventures set in an alternate vision of the American West. We've got things like A.J. Fitzwater's The Voyages of Sinrak the Dapper, which is a mini collection of stories about a dapper lesbian capybara pirate captain. <laughs> we went through like a period of where there was a lot of pirate stuff. So I spent a jolly day at an event at a brewery here in town in which I was wedged in between a couple of authors. And one of them had this this doorstop series of, of pirate fantasies that he'd written. And he had this very sort of deep, very slow voice. And every time somebody went by, he would go up to them. He would reach out to them. When, when approached, just reach out and say, hi, do you like pirates? So after about four hours of this... <laughs> Boy. I mean, that's, that's marketing. In order to get this gentleman's voice out of my head, <laughs> I, I announced we were going to do a pirate anthology. So we did a pirate anthology, and it turned out to be just wildly, wildly eclectic. When I went into it, I had a very, a much more set vision of what it was going to turn out to be. And we ended up with Scourge of the Seas of Time and Space. It's historical science fiction and fantasy stories about pirates. And we got submissions by authors from 14 different countries. Uh, and one local, and just like wild, wild variety. I mean, everything from like pirates in the canals of post-apocalyptic, post-climate change New York City to uh, a story about um, Andromache, Hector's widow, turning pirate after the Trojan Wars. And in the middle of this, we got this, this fabulous story about a dapper lesbian capybara pirate. And I, I know, AJ, I've been to New Zealand. I've been to the national convention there and so forth. So I looked at it and I said, well, yes, we're going with furries too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I reached out to AJ and said, could there be more of these? I know there's at least one other story, but would you want to do a collection? And AJ said, why, yes. And so we went forward from there. So that book came out in 2020, <laughs> which was just a train wreck of a year in so many ways. But anyway, putting that aside for the moment. Hmm. What are you talking about? I don't watch the news. Sorry. <laughs> I mentioned I'm in Minneapolis, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so we live four blocks from George Floyd Square and things hmm. were on fire a lot that year. It was it was very very intense. So dear dear, plus, plus a, a little thing called the pandemic, right? So yeah, yeah, there's there a lot going on. Well, <laughs> we had lockdown. We had, we had we had kind of a, a a healthy chunk of like everything that year. It was it was it was intense. It was very intense. But speaking more to the positive side, you mentioned you, I, you guys have also published uh, Solar Punk, which is you know an inherently optimistic look at the future. We've done some solar punk. We just released uh, Urban Fantasy. We've got a really fabulous uh, fairy tale retelling. Heather Rose Jones is an author who does a lot of podcasting and blogging about 
depictions of queer women throughout history. And uh, she has her own fantasy series with another another publisher. But she wrote this this terrific novella that's a retelling of Beauty and the Beast with an aromantic beauty, which really just unpacks so many levels of that story in some really interesting ways. So that's The Language of Roses that came out last year. We also released Michael Miriam's Last Card Anun Station, which is set in Minneapolis circa about 2007. I occasionally refer to it as the most Minneapolis urban fantasy since Emma Bull's War for the Oaks. Because <laughs> it is, it's just you know, it's it's that same sort of love song to a specific place and time. Mm-hmm. We just put out a, a new edition of Melissa Scott and Amy Griswold's Death by Silver, which is gay gas lamp Edwardian murder mysteries. That's it's volume one. Volume two will be out in December. We do my menopausal werewolf series as well. I, I have a series of novels about menopausal werewolves, which are about coming out at midlife and finding community and werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense because I'm so much more. Maybe it's just the Canadian thing, you know. We have a still popular 20 years later uh, werewolf horror film about, uh, where the metaphor is about you know coming into puberty uh, mm-hmm. as a you know as a girl, you know the blood and all that. Uh, I've never thought about the other end of uh, yeah menopause. Do you like that? <laughs> Oddly enough, Ginger Snaps did did actually partially inspire it. <laughs> oh, okay, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, cool. Ginger Snaps came out. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say Ginger Snaps came out around the same time that um, uh, Susie McKee Charnas, who's a prominent fantasy author who just passed away recently. Susie had written a story called Boobs, which was also about a teenage girl becoming a werewolf at you know at, at puberty. And I, I kind of looked at those, and somebody had invited me to write for an anthology of werewolf stories, and I'm like, well, I want to do something different. So so I did something different. <laughs> <laughs> I ran across, there's a, a, like a, I don't know, WebMD or something like that. And it, it was one of those sites that had, you know, a description of the symptoms of menopause and it was you know, mood swings, longer teeth because your gums recede, you know, um, oh. it went, went, went on in that un- unexpected hair growth. And I'm like, you know what that sounds like? <laughs> like vulnerability to silver. What? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And thus the series was launched. So Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like, you know, Queen of Swords Press could not be accused of uh, lack of variety. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, it sounds no. like you guys are... <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, also it would be fair to say that you guys do have a, a focal point as well. You know, you know publishing uh, queer woman forward uh, literature. Would that be fair to say? Yes. Okay. So... This is all sorts of wonderful stuff, and you are actually in the middle of promotion right now, of course, talking with me. But just broadly speaking, how do you approach the challenge of promotion? Also, could you just tell me what's going to finally replace Twitter? Because, oh my God, everybody I speak to, <laughs> everyone I speak to, especially people who do crowdfunding campaigns, they're like, I, I got to figure it out. I got to figure it out because it's breaking more with every week, yeah. but nothing has really replaced it yet either. It's still the best place online, I find, for networking and for uh, magnifying your reach despite the uh, all of it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a very good question. I wish I had a definite answer for you. Uh, so far, I primarily switched over to Mastodon out in Wandering Shop, which is the science fiction and fantasy instance. Um, I've dabbled my toes in Spoutable, but I don't really like it. Mm. I mean, the setup is fine. It's just more about Conversations on Spoutable, at least in the areas that I've been in, seem to focus a lot on ranting. And I, I, yeah, not, not, who, who needs that? <laughs> people aren't actually having conversations. I find people have more conversations on um, Mastodon, but it's not great for promoting work yeah. because it's hard to thread things and it's hard to find things and you know all the th- stuff that goes in there. What I've seen, little I've seen about Blue Sky is it doesn't seem very appealing yet. So unless they come up with something different, I mean, at this point, I think that you know, as publishers, as writers, we have to start thinking about the fact that our audience is getting more visual about books and reading. And that's part of why TikTok is a bigger thing. Yeah. So we, we have dutifully gone out to TikTok. We are on TikTok. You know, we do Instagram. We do, what else do we do? Huh? What, what don't we do? We don't do Tumblr just because I didn't have time. <laughs> 
Well, and Tumblr seems to be kind of to the side now, you know, I think yeah. uh, when they did their whole uh, no more nudity, thanks uh, routine that really murdered their audience. And it hasn't, they haven't been able to claw it back. I don't, I don't hear anyone say they're excited about Tumblr uh, these days. Yeah. Whereas like BookTok and BookTube are maybe bigger deals. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm kind of, since recording, I'm kind of uh, rooting for Hive because it's like Twitter plus Instagram. And I think, okay, we got the visual and we got, you know, the threads and the magnification for retweets and stuff. But they just haven't got a desktop client yet. And I find oh. I use these apps mostly on the computer because that's where I mostly am doing work or whatever. And it's easier just to flick over to it and easier and more comfortable to do certain things in terms of uploading stuff. Um, but, you know, it's still anybody's game at this point. <laughs> we'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's certainly room for, you know, it to go a whole bunch of different directions. But, yeah, I'm, I'm expecting Twitter to, to finally finish going poof. Um and it's getting like a you know when a mall hasn't quite died but you, you know what you know it's coming <laughs> yes it's coming yes it's, it's getting that feeling and yeah, yeah and then blue sky like i i at first was very optimistic because a lot of people i trust were going and trying it out and it's still it is kind of fun in a way to pretend that it's twitter before all the garbage but moderation and a whole bunch of other things right are sort of questionable yeah. and it's still, and it's still invite only right now so so we'll we'll see what happens but sorry i got too specific just because yeah i don't know anybody <laughs> I'm speaking to you right now as you know, as an editor of, a, of my own publication. Um, I don't know anyone who's trying to promote something in, in the world of uh, books and publishing right now. Is it kind of going, oh, Jesus, I'm staring at Twitter. <laughs> so I thought I'd get your 10 cents on that specific issue. But more broadly, more broadly, um, what, what is your approach to promotion? Well, I mean, we're, we're financed through a combination of book sales and um, our Patreon, which is a deliberate choice on my part. I, I didn't you know, want to be continually pumping money into it to keep this afloat because that's an expensive hobby and we don't want those. So we're, you know, we haven't gone the route of crowdsourcing books. You know, that I, I could see doing that for one or two titles. I can't see doing that all the time for every single book. And I know there, there are publishers who do that and they make it work for them. And that's great. But that's not something I want to do. So for us, I've gone with the model of, of continuous motion, sort of like a shark. So, you know, we're always doing book tables. And I mean, this week I... Let's see. I was on the local radio station. We have a local uh, ra radio station with a it's, all, it's volunteer run, and they have a show that's specifically around writing. So I was just a guest on that. Uh, so been doing that. You know, in the last couple of weeks, we've had book tables at things. We all do a lot of teaching. Uh, Jenny Golliboy. For anybody who's not for anybody who's not familiar, do you mind just quickly explaining what a book table is? Oh, sure. So book table is when you have a, a table at an event. A couple of weeks ago, the Women's Center for one of the local universities had a bunch of us in and we all had tables and people could go around and ask about the books and ask what we were doing and buy things if they wanted to. Um, so we do a lot of those. We do a lot of conventions. We do mostly science fiction and fantasy ones, but we also do literary festivals. We do book fairs. You know, we'll we'll do we'll do Pagan Pride in the fall. We do a lot of the regional, you know, Pride festivals outside the Twin Cities. Um, so a lot of stuff like that. Um, so we've usually got at least one book table per month, often more than that. So right on. And with things like the interviews uh, or you know maybe uh, blog reviews, do you find uh, do you spend a lot of time like reaching out to people, or do they come to you, or how does that go for you? Often at this point, people often come to me. So we've been around for, so Queen of Swords has been in existence over six years now, which, you know, as, as, as a local acquaintance of mine, who's also a publisher, we were, we were chatting at an event and he fist bumped me and said, that's like 102 in small press years. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's sadly true because a, a lot of people go into, you know, particularly, you know, starting up publishing companies um, in particular, I think very idealistically, you know, and, and they've got big hopes and big dreams. And it's hard to keep things going, you know, when when sales are down, when things aren't going that well, when stuff happens, you know. So I I, I mean, I'm glad I spent the two years prepping before I launched because I think that that really made a big difference. But I know other people who did it much more spontaneously and are still doing okay and checking along just fine. So it's not, it, it's it's a thing that worked for me. You know, so at this point, I slash we, because my, my authors as well, you know, get invited to a lot of things. You know, a couple of us have been on the radio station before, so they asked me to come back. I just did a podcast interview with Heather, as a matter of fact, last weekend. So that just went out this week. 
Um, and that's part of her fiction series because I also write a fiction series for her. You know, I'll, I'll be moderating a panel at the online uh, Sifwa Nebula ceremonies next week. And that was, you know, I'm an organization member and I just threw my hat in the ring and they, they assigned me a panel. We'll be at WISCON as well, which is the big feminist science fiction convention over Memorial Day weekend. So that'll be in, in um, Madison. One area that has been really kind of interesting, and I haven't, it's still too new to see if there's going to be a lot of crossover, but Jenny Golliboy, who's one of my authors, is also a literary agent. And you would know her as Kate Hartfield's agent, as a matter of fact, or you might know her as Kate Hartfield's agent as, you know, cool Canadian authors doing really well and doing great things right now. And Jenny has a, a, a hilarious, funny science fiction novel with us called Obviously Aliens. Jenny is really is working on breaking into screenplays and writing screenplays. So one of the things that she's shopping around to festivals right now is a screenplay based on obviously aliens. And so I, we haven't seen whether or not that's going to have a lift on book sales or not yet. But Michael Miriam, who wrote Last Card and In Station, is also shopping around screenplays. And they're both getting you know a lot of contest recognition and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. But overall, a lot of it is just doing things, you know, consistently and constantly. So, you know, stuff goes up on the TikTok once a week. Stuff goes out into the various posts, you know, at least once a week. We got a monthly newsletter. We do at least a couple of events a month. Um, And it's not all just me. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes we're doing things together. We usually try to do a Reddit AMA once a year, for example. Sometimes there's a critical mass of us at a convention like a bunch of us were at Worldcon in Chicago, which was really cool. So we got to ha- actually hang out and spend time together, which doesn't happen all that often. So a lot of that kind of stuff, you know. It's nice when internet people get to be real people, so to speak. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we'll get in the room there. At what, at what point in your sort of six years as far did you find it kind of ticked over from you uh, having to put yourself out a lot to people coming to you and saying, hey, can we interview you for our podcast or whatever? Well, bearing in mind that I went into this, you know, I was already an award-winning author. I had a lot of stuff out. You know, I mean, at one point or another, I've written everything from nonfiction to literary erotica to Sherlock Holmes sequels, you know, so I've done a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it, it really started to pick up back when I was still just an author before I became a publisher. But in terms of as a publisher... I would say it's really picked up in the last couple of years. So I'm starting to get, you know, invited to be at events as a publisher. You know, we Jenny and I co-taught a class at Clarion last year. We both teach at the Loft Literary Center, which is the local book center here in the Twin Cities, uh, which has a a fair a fair, fairly prestigious footprint. You know, so we do a lot, a lot of that kind of stuff. So, you know, I would say that as we've gotten more visible, as we've added more people, as our books are coming up for more awards and getting higher visible, you know, reviews and so forth, you know, that makes a difference just because, you know, you get shinier as that happens. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Just, just consistency and, and keep, keep putting out good stuff and people will hopefully pick up on you. Yeah. Now you've you've alluded to this uh, somewhat, but yeah, it's it, and you mentioned the Patreon. It's no secret that the financial side of running an independent press is challenging. Uh, I'm curious, as much as you're comfortable discussing publicly, uh, how do you tackle this, and what are your long-term plans to keep the business viable or even grow it? Like, uh, well, you mentioned the Patreon. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works and what your decision was in, in running, okay. using that as a way of getting funding? The Patreon started out as my personal Patreon. And I generally work day jobs in IT, which, as you may be aware, is not the most stable industry in the universe. <laughs> and I was, I was trying to look to a point where I was hoping that I was going to be able to maybe not have a day job or have less of a day job. So I started it back then. And for, I think, like the first year or so, uh, what I did was I experimented with different things to see what people wanted to read, wanted to, get, wanted to see from me. And I took the proceeds and I donated it. So there was a list of donations about, you know, where the money was going to each month. Um, and I, you know, just did a whole, you know, range of different organizations. By the time I started the press, it was apparent that there was going to need to be more of a regular cash infusion, simply because you've got times where sales slow down a lot. And then you've got times where sales are really high. So, but it's difficult to kind of, you know, spread things out. And there were things that I wanted to do. So the goal is always that 
each year has to be better than the year before. So that that's the sales goal I set myself. And I always have a specific number for that. And the Patreon helps a lot when we're having, you know, times when things are slow, or if I want to do additional advertising, for example, if I want to do a new event, you know, things of that nature where we need extra money and the book sales aren't going to cover it. Generally speaking, I mean, our book sales have been, except for 2020, which yeah, <laughs> have been on track, you know, increasing each year. So we're actually kind of, we're, we're checking along about where I hope we were going to be two years ago before 2020 happened. <laughs> Oh, fair enough. And to the Patreon, do you find that the additional tasks, I mean, Patreon's funny. I mean, some people get away with having like no incentives. It's just like five bucks, give me money, whatever. And other people get very elaborate in how many tiers they have and how many uh, different combinations of incentives there are. And I've definitely seen some creators go, oh man, it's like, it's another job. And I just wanted it to support the thing I want to do. Uh, you know, and, and it's not like independent press, uh, people have, uh, you know, too few tasks to attend to in the week. So uh, what do, have, how have you found um, maintaining the Patreon on top of everything else you do? And uh, what, have you, what have you done to keep it sort of manageable and exciting enough for people to want to get in on it, but not too much work uh, to take away from the thing it's supposed to be funding? Well, I do have tiers, but they're largely meaningless. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> there's, there's kind of an upper tier and then there's a lower tier. And, I, you know, everybody gets something. The upper tier people sometimes get extra things, you know, exclusive on, exclusives on things. So we do, um, what I started out doing about two years ago was I actually started writing a novel in progress. And it was a, a project that I had backburnered for a while. And so I, I dug it out of the the dust bunnies and blew the dust off it and said, here, watch me write a novel. It'll be fun. So, <laughs> so I'm about little uh, between 40 and 50,000 words in on that one. You know, there's like a guy that gets both and, and I'm pantsing. I'm totally a pantser. So it takes me a while to do this <laughs> stuff. So it's all out on, you know, the spreadsheet that I update periodically. I'm like, look, these are the characters. And, and it'll say things like, this is so-and-so. They appear in this chapter. Are they coming back? Question mark. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you say it takes longer? I always thought pantsing went quicker because you don't spend ages outlining before sitting down. I, I I'm, think I'm about, I think a lot while I'm doing my pantsing. So it, it, it takes me longer because I, 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 I got to feel it, you know? Okay. So yeah, so I've been doing that. So our patrons get... Anything from first dibs on author reading videos to playlists. I put out short fiction and articles, the novel in progress when I get to it. I also, every time we get a new title, everybody get, who wants one gets a copy, which is also a handy way to get reviews, just saying. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then, then around like around the holidays, like we have, you know, I send out cards um, periodically, like my wife before she became ill, did a lot of, she makes handmade books and paper and, and journals and things of that nature, boxes. So I was sending out little Christmas tree ornaments in the shape of books. You know, we have our own blend of tea that is made for us by a local tea company. So people get tea if they want it. So <laughs> that, that, that kind of stuff, you know, just, just fun little bonus things, magnets. You know? Yeah. Okay. But we, I, I honestly, I've had people who've been with our Patreon for years. I mean, just since the very beginning, since I first started it. And every now and then they pop up and go, yay. And then they go back to whatever they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> it has been my experience a lot with uh, crowdfunding, whether it's Patreon or Kickstarter or whatever. Uh, there are some people who they just want to support you. They don't really care about getting the, the tchotchkes or the whatever, or sometimes not even the book. They're just like, yeah, just make it. Just, just, that's cool. I like that you're doing it. Uh, I, I, if I could just press a button to multiply the amount of those people, <laughs> that would be amazing. And actually, speaking of crowdfunding, you mentioned earlier that like, yeah, it's not really your jam. May I ask what it is that, at least as of this recording, I mean, you're, obviously people are allowed to change their minds in the future, but as of this moment, why crowdfunding doesn't appeal to you uh, very much as a it's not so much, I mean, the idea, could I do it? Could I do it successfully? That part is interesting. I think that a lot of people, you know, going into it fresh don't necessarily know how much work is involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and there's distinctions. I mean, if you use, you know, Kickstarter versus one of the other programs, if you use Kickstarter, you know, you got to think about those levels and you got to think about those rewards and you got to think about how that's going to be structured. If you use something like Indiegogo, may not fund, 
but there's less pressure to do all the stuff. So I think what I would like to do is, and there's a story behind this, um, what I'd like to do ultimately is I, I, I want to do a crowd funder for our next anthology. The problem is that every time I sit down and start to plan that anthology, something happens and it gets moved out. And I, I had a conversation with an author recently and, and they said, so if I just write a story, will you just do the damn book? And I said, yes. <laughs> so I have the feeling that's how this is going to roll. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. And, and if, if I may ask again, uh, I'll cut this if you're not comfortable you know, speaking of the financial side, has Queen of Swords become your part-time or full-time job, or is it still... Uh... It's definitely not my full-time job. Okay. Yeah, for context, my spouse has dementia, and so I am, you know, and, and I live in the United States, and I'm sure you've heard horror stories about our, our healthcare system, and our, our safety nets are not great. So there have been several points where it looked like I was going to be able to switch into you know, writing, teaching, publishing, and really focus on that. And then usually something happens. And this is the current something has happened. So I am still working a day job in IT. And like I said, I mean, we, we do a little better each year. You know, we, we, we add wacky stuff, you know, liability insurance, our own set of tables and chairs and a tent dedicated just to doing events. So we don't have to borrow things anymore, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's not at a point where I feel comfortable just saying, okay, I can just do this now. We'll see how this year goes. We've had some big changes going forward, which have been really cool. One of which is Jenny, who is, as I mentioned, as a literary agent, had been pushing me to try for audiobook sales. And I didn't think that we had the sales figures for it. But finally, after after months of her diligently shoving <laughs> in a very kind way, very understanding, but very persistent. I, I went and talked to uh, Tantor Media and I pitched some of our books to them and they ended up buying the audio rights for the first two werewolf books. They've also optioned the third. So I need to actually finish the third book. So what we're doing this year is we're doing the new editions of Melissa and Amy's Lines and Mathy novels which is Death by Silver and A Death of the Dionysus Club. And like a lot of that stuff is already like put together. So the first book's out, second book is already coming, getting put together. We're doing a really cool novella release this summer by an author named Dee Holloway. Um, it's called Little Nothing, and it's set in Florida at the start of the Civil War. And it's about the, this young lesbian couple, one of whom does um, thread magic. Okay. So she makes protective spells and things with knot work and embroidery. And her lover, who trains essentially water horses, and the plot hinges on the Confederacy trying to get control of the water horses to use them to attack the Union, and, and our heroines working to stop them. And it's, it's just, it's beautifully written. There's all kinds of cool stuff going on in it. And we're really close to having that one ready to head out the door in arc form and all of that good stuff. After which I'm going to spend, you know, several months writing a new werewolf novel because it'll take me several months to write a new werewolf novel well that actually gets me to something else i really want to talk with you about you know i knew going in launching my magazine that that would be time not spent on my own writing and i just thought you know i really want to make the thing whatever i'll figure it out i'll accept it uh, also, with my reading, I've definitely lowered my Goodreads goal for the year <laughs> compared to previous years. Yeah. That kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, like how many hours a week roughly do you find you put into Queen of Swords and how do you eke out time for your own writing? Uh, it's hard. Um, I, you know, and granted, if I didn't also have to work full time and do caregiving, it would be easier. <laughs> uh, um, but factoring in teaching time, you know, doing radio shows, doing book tables, doing all of that stuff, plus the editing, the writing, you know, the following up on things. It's a lot. I estimate that probably with all of it, I'm spending about 70, 80 hours a week. And then my own writing is kind of like we get little drips and drabs of things. And it, it was a lot easier before I had to add caregiving to the mix. That's definitely like yeah. pushed things in a way that that's, that's been really challenging. I mean, like last year we were able to have interns and we had, you know, so we actually had interns in the university who did like amazing work for us. It was so cool, you know, and, and this year people have been talking to me about it and I'm like, I just don't have the bandwidth right now, you know, please stay on the radar. Please keep talking to me, 
but it's probably not going to happen this year. Yeah, so that that's basically why I'm saying, you know, we're just going to be we're going to be on hold for submissions. We're going to be on hold for new stuff while I write this next book because the Werewolf series is our best-selling series. So it would be silly to ignore this opportunity. So I'm yeah. going to go pay attention to that opportunity. <laughs> so and, what we'll probably writing, I'm sorry. All right, I was going to say he's writing that uh, to be a work in progress on your Patreon. I just always my instinct is always to sort of like knit things together as much as possible, so the time and energy gives you the biggest reward, right? Yeah. And I just wonder if that's you know how you're thinking. Are you going to are you going to write that uh, third werewolf novel live on Patreon, so to speak, or will it be no? Private? That that that's another novel. Uh, the 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 novel I'm doing on the on the Patreon was one that I am emotionally comfortable letting people try watch me try to figure out a draft and where stuff's going and what I'm doing with it. Okay. The werewolf novels are books of the heart, and so no, I, uh, that th those are those are two separate projects. So. You know, I, I've got it started. It's underway. I've chugged my way through a few hundred words a week, and that will eventually pick up speed. So that's going to be kind of the, the focus for us. And then for next year, it's probably going to be some books by authors who are already writing for us because they know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it's it's a little easier for me to write stuff if I've got some things that are plug and play. They're ready to go. We're not waiting for them to you know to come in through the door and then go through five rounds of editing and all of that stuff. We'll we will get back to that. That's the plan. It's just at the moment I got to write another book. <laughs> Do you find for sneaking writing time? I mean, are you one of those people who can write on their phone or do you have like a little notepad you pull out your butt pocket when you got 10 seconds or is it a little more like, okay, yeah, it has to be at a laptop link. How do you, how do you find that? Um, I can do some writing on my phone. Usually my, usually if I'm going to write on my phone, it's going to be an article or a short story. And I can do that. One of the things that's really fallen by the wayside for me in the last, you know, two years has been short fiction writing which on the one hand kind of makes me sad. On the other hand, you know, the landscape has changed so much for short fiction in the last few years. It would take me time to get caught up with it again. Like in terms of what's popular? or What's what popular, style, what markets are out there, who's doing what, um, what all of that looks like. You know, so last year I did... I had a couple of short stories published, one queer weird west story, uh, a one of my Sherlockiana stories, um, something else that I'd have to look up, and an essay. You know, but when before I started publishing, that would have been a an, a devastating year for my ego because I was putting out so much more than that. <laughs> now I'm kind of like, yay! I actually got some stuff out the door. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I mean, I guess you know, sometimes you just have to stop and be like, I, I, I know even already, I'm, there are days I've been having a, a much lower scope than what you're wrestling with, uh, where I think, oh, I didn't get anything done, and it's like, actually, if you look at the hours of the day, <laughs> like lots of things were done. I just didn't write a new short story, uh, and so do you find you have moments where you have to remind yourself, like, no, you're doing lots of stuff, you're doing great. It's just not, <laughs> you know, some of the other stuff. But, you know, that that more, was more more, more of a thing last year, I think, for me. You know, this year I'm like. You know, I, I've got I've got stuff to focus on. It's like, all right, I got the audiobook. It's no longer I'm not doing anything. I'm writing a novel. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> In fact, I'm writing two novels, two separate novels. <laughs> you know. So I, I feel I feel better about that. Good, good. And talking about feeling better and, and just how writers feel in general, do you find part of the joy of running a publishing house is uh, in the press is, is being able to treat your creators the way you would like to be treated yourself as a writer. <laughs> Does that, do you do you find that? I try. I try. You know, I try to be really straightforward with people. Um, I support their other projects. So if they've got you know books or podcasts or you know something out with other publishers, something new, I'm really plugging the the screenplays because I think that's really great. You know, so I, I try to try to keep things because I, I figure that they do well, we do well. Yeah. You know, and there's there's generally a direct correlation. People pay more attention to the press because people are paying attention to our authors. You know, we get some some really you know cool things that come along from time to time but like right at the moment just the projects that our authors are engaged in alex axe is working on a team that's working on a game for marvel oh cool so that's really cool i've already talked a little bit about michael and um, jenny 
Um, Heather's usually got something, you know, amazing going on with the podcasting and um, her historical research, which has been really, really phenomenal. You know, so we have a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Working with, we're working with a really talented bunch of folks, and we're very lucky to be able to do that. But, you know, my philosophy is go get them, go do cool things. And if, if that means we have to wait another year for your next collection, your next novel, your sequel to something, well, something else will come along to fill that gap and we'll we'll move forward from there. Fair enough. So I feel like we could fill, you know, a whole hour just on this next question. So I'll say, you know, the first couple of things that come to mind, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll focus on. What advice might you give anybody who is considering starting their own independent press? What would be sort of the, some of the big headlines on that? Aim to be in it for the long game if you're going to do it. Because it's a lot of work and you've got to find whatever that level of joy is uh, for you in that process. So a lot of the small presses that I have seen fold in just the time that I've been publishing, um, people go into it either with very high expectations of how it's going to work particularly when it comes to sales and the point at which they're going to, you know, magically break even and be able to cut free of the day job. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, people do it. It does happen, but it's usually not, you know, your first two, three years. You're going to be at it longer than that to see that kind of, you know, that kind of rise out of it. Um, I think also that I, I was talking to a friend who's a small business owner of a different kind of small business, and we were talking about a, a local pie baking enterprise that had regrettably closed up shop, which was really unfortunate because their pies were amazing. But one of the things that would happen was that they would close pretty regularly to quote, rediscover joy, unquote. Yeah, exactly. And what? sorry, listen, I just pulled the face. Anyway, yeah. What? <laughs> and and my friend and I were talking about that and she's like, no, man, you either get the joy, you know, you find what joy there is in, in, in the day to day. And if that is not the thing that speaks to you, then you are not cut out to do this because this is hard. <laughs> I mean, for me, like uh, just a recent, a recent scrap of joy. I didn't, I hadn't seen this when it came out. I don't know how I missed it because I usually pay attention to the stuff. But Cora Bueller gave a shout out to Michael Miriam's Last Card and In Station as one of her favorite novels from last year. And so I was able to pass that along. And Michael's just like, wow, <laughs> so excited. <laughs> You know, well, it's funny you should mention Cora is one of the people that, who made me aware of you oh. and uh, what you're doing. Cora is awesome. I really like Cora. I, I, mm. I hope I get to meet her in person someday. So be in it for long haul. Find that joy where you can. Uh, I don't know, just rule of threes. Is there anything else you'd like to give us Networking. advice to people? Networking is your friend. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, networking is, is, is such a huge boon, especially if you are undercapitalized and overscheduled, as most of us are, to be able to boost other presses. Um, you know, we do book bundles, for example, next month uh, in June. We do a, uh, an annual story bundle. And it's uh, it'll be the Pride Month story bundle that we do each year that Melissa and I coordinate. And we've got books from, I think, 13 different presses, you know, all, you know, all queer focused presses. And we, among other things, um, the book bundle is it's you, we can designate a charity for part of the proceeds through Story Bundle. And so we raise money for Rainbow Railroad, which is an international nonprofit that assists LGBTQ um, people from <laughs> to leave places where they are in mortal danger. Yeah. I'm tempted to say like Florida, but we'll put that aside for the moment. Huh. You know, they, 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 they helped people get out of Chechnya. They've done just, just amazing, amazing work. And so every year there are designated charity and we, we you know, we, we go make some money for them as well as getting the word out about some really great books. And it was kind of interesting. We've, we've been doing this for a few years now. And usually, you know, we get a pretty positive response from publishers. And this year it was just amazing, you know, that we were getting publishers coming back going, could you take three of my books? <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> so so I, th I think we filled up within two weeks. And usually it takes us a little, little bit longer than that. But, you know, it's this, it's this great chance to work together to promote, um, in a lot of cases, new and unusual voices, um, books that people might not be running across. So we do a lot of stuff like that. Last year, uh, Dave Ring from Neon Hemlock, which is just 
a great, mm. great press, and Dave does amazing work. Dave coordinated with the Library of Congress and got a group of us together, and we, we did a panel for the staff of the Library of Congress, and it was several different small press publishers, including Queen of Swords Press. So just stuff like that where you get to, you know, to work with other presses, and it takes very so little to, you know, give a shout out to somebody's crowdfunder, yeah. plug their new title do reviews if you have time, but certainly at least lend your social media footprint to, to, to picking everybody up and helping them get the word out too. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, listen, I, I think we'll have to have you back on at some point or whatever, because I definitely feel like I could talk for another hour without breaking a sweat with you. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. So for now, though, uh, you have been extremely good at what you do in the sense. So I, I usually like to wrap up by asking, like, so what you got coming out? But you have you have covered the hell out of that. So... Uh, <laughs> That's me. Uh, you know, and, no, no, good. Hey, you're good at your job. What can I say? So um, perhaps, we, you know, I'll put a link in the show notes and stuff like that, but it's always good to hear it as well. If people want to find Queen of Swords online, where should they go? Uh, Queenofswordspress.com is our main website. We do have a monthly newsletter that you can sign up for out there. We also have... <laughs> We have a footprint on Twitter. Uh, we're on Facebook. Um, we're QOS Press on Instagram and TikTok. We do have a Discord, but we usually just use it for events. Um, so our, our main platforms these days are, are Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We have a YouTube channel with um, videos of our authors reading, as well as I do workshops about small presses and starting small presses and fun stuff like that. And I also build playlists of panels that where, you know, events that our authors that are, are appearing at and so forth. Um, so yeah, those are probably like our, our main ones at the moment. And if anybody has any great ideas about replacing Twitter, I'm all over it. <laughs> yeah. Same here. Oh, all right. Oh. Well, thanks so much, Catherine. Uh, like I said, <laughs> good we'll at Twitter. <laughs> I know, right? Like, especially after like working so hard to build an audience and for however long anybody's been at it. And then it's like, oh, well, sorry. Uh, yeah. Some some really cool guy just bought it. And anyway, <laughs> grumble, grumble, grumble. All right. <laughs> well, on that fine note, lots of positive stuff in this uh, interview as well. Again, thank you so much for your time, Catherine. And uh, we'll have to have you back at some point in the future. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to so I'm writing a novel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Catherine, and I'll see you soon.